Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I am going to keep this introduction brief because I just can't wait for you to hear from Fatima, one of the most courageously independent and optimistic women I've interviewed on this show. Fatima was born in Lebanon, not in the urban center of Beirut, but in a small rural town containing Roman ruins, produce markets where her father sold the vegetables, Fatima helped pick at 4 a.m. every morning, and bakeries making safiha, the delicious open-faced lamb pies Fatima shares with us. At 16 years old, Fatima came to live in the U.S. for five years. She returned to Lebanon at 21, very much a changed woman, and found she no longer fit into the beloved small town where her family has lived for centuries. What I admire most about Fatima is this. While her circumstances easily could have led her to conclude she was alone, driftless, and cultureless, she instead chose to love and embrace the best in both cultures, Lebanese and American. She has chosen New York City as her home, and there she lives a free life where she celebrates her Lebanese heritage, her family's love, their frugality, and open-mindedness by creating for herself a slow life in a big city. And yes, food plays a big part in every facet of that celebration. For me, Fatima's words reminded me that we can both speak truth boldly while also embracing nuance and loving and respecting those with different opinions. Welcome, Fatima. Hi, yes, this is Fatima. How are you? Oh, it's really good to hear your voice. Oh, I am so excited. I was looking forward to this the whole week. I told everyone I love. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going on my favorite podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm so honored to hear you say that. And I'm so thankful to talk to you. So right off the bat, is it, you said Fatima, is it Fatima or like, what's the emphasis? It's on the second syllable? So I've been like, I've been living in the U.S. for like 10 years and everybody called me Fatima. So I go by Fatima. Usually people say Fatima, but I truly don't mind anything. I usually just go up and say, hey, my name is Fatima. And that's pretty much it. OK, OK. But in, in Lebanon, they would call you Fatima. Yes. OK. And then <laughs> let's jump right in also with your dish. I think you pronounce it differently. That So my husband, who's Palestinian, I don't know if you heard that. Oh my goodness, I didn't know that. I I am just so excited right now. I just, your last name was like, oh, is it your family last name or your husband's last name? It's my yeah. husband's. Yeah, yeah it's very Arabic because I know a lot of Lebanese people who have that last name. I was like, this when I first saw your podcast, I noticed your name. I'm like, this is interesting. It might be an Arabic last name. Yeah. And I was very excited. <laughs> people <laughs> Before we even start, I just want to say like your podcasts are literally my favorite thing to do when I'm cooking. It's I put it on. I like the background. I love to hear your voice and the oh. amazing people you interview. Like truly, truly one of my favorite things to do is listening to your podcast. Oh, that really means so much to me. I don't even know what to say, but I'm really grateful <laughs> and thank you for your support. And I'm excited now to add your episode and your story and your culture and country to the to the repertoire so that's wonderful i mean i know yeah (laughs) i know people are going to learn from you as well 
Oh, I am so excited. I hopefully I'll be helpful in some sort of way, but I'm very excited to be here today with you. I'm always looking forward to it for sure. Me too. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Well, and my husband's going to be thrilled that I'm making these pies again for sure. How do you say them? So the so it's called safiha, which like they have this letter. It's hard to spell. So safiha is the word for it. So they have them lahmabajin. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's the there's different version of making it, but the only difference where I came from is the shape of it, and they make it with lamb and not yeah. a lot of tomato. So like just the little twinkles of the in the recipe and the baking method of it, and like wood ovens and stuff like that make it a little different from right. any other stuff. It's a spelled safiha, so it's S A F I H A. So yeah, that's a kind of open face pie in a way, square shape. Right. So I'm looking, I actually still have, so it's the cookbook and I think it's mainly actually a Lebanese cookbook, not Palestinian that I have. It's called Satane. Um, oh yes. Oh my goodness. That's a great cookbook. I do you have this cookbook? Uh, well, I actually have a signed copy of that cookbook. I got it as a gift from a friend. I love that cookbook. Are you serious? Yes, <laughs> I, I actually I'm, I have an obsession with cookbooks like there are no others like I get inspiration from like eight books I have in my house and I love them like everything I do I go I love touching paper books with recipes and them. I don't know something about it that's especially, so cool oh especially the Ina Garden old cookbooks even she's so creative she's definitely definitely my top American kind of a chef I love her yeah yeah and you have the skills that you can just combine everything Oh, thank you. It took a long time to build all that skills, but I've been doing it for so long. It's, it's becoming next, uh, next nature, as they say, yeah, to me. Yeah, Second yeah. Nature. Well, that's what I love about the name that you put out there in the world. Your moniker is hummus meets pizza. It's like you just do it all, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It's definitely a combination. I am obsessed with New York as equally obsessed with my own culture. And I want to bring those two together. And it's became kind of a merging of a world recipe. And I love yeah. that. Like, I don't want to just be defined by one culture and one dish because I love food of all kind of food. So I want to learn everything I could. Yeah. And I love that. So yeah. I was with the name. It's kind of a catchy when I got it. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, it's, it's very catchy. It's very <laughs> catchy. Yeah. And yeah, it really is for sure. So I think that he called these, I think they called it Sfiha. Like they yeah. almost took out a syllable or are they different things? Is it the difference in the Arabic dialect or are they truly it's different pies? No, no, it's all the same thing. I think the, the, the difference is the spelling of the words because I don't know if you know, but the, every country have different accent in speaking Arabic. Yeah. So like the closest language are between three countries. Like for me personally, Lebanon, Palestine and um, Jordan and Syria are like the closest and everything okay. else becomes a little heavy, a little accent, a little differences. Even in Lebanon, in the same country, it's like the country. Like I, I came from over the countryside. So when people from the like cities of Beirut, they speak, hear me speak, they kind of laugh because they can tell like I have a heavy village style word. So it depends on where you're from and how you yeah. grow up. That's that's really cool. OK, so Sfiha and Safiha, they're the same. They're the same thing, just slightly exactly. different accent. Yeah. And it's not even in a tiny country like, of course, here in the US, we all have different accents. But even in a tiny country like the UK, yeah. I mean, the accents are there's a very posh accent and then there's a lower class accent. There's a North accent and the South accent. And it's like tiny, 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 you know, so it's yeah, not that. In Lebanon, it's the same thing. You go to the North, you will hear like, have your breaking word. Like where I came from, they slang. They're like Texas, but in Arabic, like my <laughs> So <laughs> when I go to the city, I try to act cool. I'm not like actually a village person. So and people kind of catch me all the time, especially after two glasses of wine. <laughs> <laughs> that, 
That's so funny. Well, let's just jump right in then to where in Lebanon that you live. So tell me, tell me what identified your region of Lebanon compared to other regions. Well, I am from uh, originally like the biggest area. I'm going to start by like kind of map wise. I am from Bekaa Valley, which is the, located two hours away from Beirut. And it's kind of in the middle of the Lebanon, but also close to the Syrian border. It's, it's between two uh. mountains. And I'm actually like the central of Bekaa Valley and the city of Baalbek. city of Baalbek is very historical. If go back to the Roman Empire, there's like Roman ruins over there. It's beautiful. It go, it's so much history. And it's an old, old land. Like my my family goes back probably to seven generations. I have like wow. grandparents like from probably from the 1700s that they are buried in a village that I'm from. Like wow. everyone from the same area, very tribal where I came from. It's a mixed religion. It's where I'm from. It's about 80% Muslim and 20% Christian. Mm. Um, but it's really like diverse, by the way. You can see in a lot of small villages where there's a church and there's a mosque next to each other. And mm-hmm. I, this is one of the coolest things. I actually, uh, I grew up in a Muslim household, but I went to a Christian school for my uh, 12 years of education. My parents wanted us to have uh, private schooling. So they sent us to a Christian French school. And huh. it was the best thing ever. It's very diverse in a way. It's funny because people there, like it's, I only started like seeing a different of religion when I moved to, out of my own country. But in Lebanon, it's we we used to celebrate Christmas, and I don't even know that it was a. I thought it was actually part of my culture and a part of my like religion. I didn't know that it's like, you know, being a Christian, you had a Christmas is different. It's really part. My mom used to have a Christmas tree, and wow. even our like neighbors who were Christians, they used to come on and uh, bring uh, gifts for Ramadan or our holidays, and it was so yeah. cool. That, one of the most amazing things that I remember about my country of how everybody's come together in different villages in a small place. What did the fur Baalbek city? It's kind of a harsh. It's like, it looked like Tuscany, Italy. Like it's very beautiful hmm. where I'm from. It's beautiful land. Well, um, it's interesting you say that because both were so closely connected to the Roman Empire. Exactly. And it's it's definitely like it would it have its influence. We're definitely influenced by a lot of huh. European culture. Like uh I mean they're kind of right now since Lebanon it's kind of a third world country, it's they don't keep up with all the history of our land. But I mean one of the first ship who ever sailed out of the world was from Lebanon back into from the Roman Empire. So much history in that land. Wow. Um, but it's a rough like I don't know how to put it in word where I'm from it's like it's beautiful like Tuscany, Italy, but at the same time, like nothing makes sense. Like all of the houses are nothing, not a one house look like the other. Everybody mm-hmm. builds whatever they want. <laughs> they're like savage in a way. Like you'll be out of on a big road and out of nowhere, the road narrows to such a tiny place. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody knows everyone. If I literally go to a bakery 10 miles away from home, if I say my dad's name, oh, you're the daughter of this person and that person. And like wow. if they hear my last name, they know exactly who my grandfather is. So it's a small big town in a way. Wow. Wow. Okay. I have so many follow-up questions already. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Please don't ask. Like, actually, with a question, I'll probably have better idea to explain things. I get overwhelmed with all that. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That sounds good. So first question, it's kind of a silly one. What did you use for a Christmas tree? I can't imagine oh that God. you had balsam firs or Douglas firs there. 
we had a fig tree. <laughs> My mom had a fig tree and she had like colorful lights. And uh, we actually we even have like Santa who goes around the village and give gifts to kids. Like it's literally a holiday for everybody. It's so cool. Yeah, I think so. It was a fig tree. <laughs> for sure. That's so interesting. So let's keep talking about this idea of Christmas and everyone celebrating it. And you said 80% was Muslim, 20% yes. was Christian. Was it a matter of if no one believes in their religion very fiercely, then it's kind of easy to accommodate other people's beliefs, right? Like it's just, it's more about, like you said, like, you know, do you put up a Christmas tree or do you make a certain kind of feast for Ramadan, you know? But the more intensely people adhere to their beliefs, I think the harder that is maybe. So I'm curious if it was just a matter of like, no one there was very religious or was it that everyone or a lot of people were very religious, but they just happened to have a very deep respect for their neighbors. Does that make sense? Exactly. Well, I will go with the second part. It's definitely mm. about being neighborly. No, like uh, people in my in my area and my tradition are very religious, not, not excessively or painfully religious, but mm. they are like God is a big part of our life. And, mm. you know, the measures, the fasting seasons and the prayers five times a day, you will see it very, very like largely in the, in the between the population. There's a mm. huge population of people wearing veils. My parents never forced it. My dad never cared. He's as long as we were in modest clothes, he never cared about us like wearing mm. veil or mm-hmm. it was a personal choice. But it's definitely a neighborly thing. We used to like, you know, even when like our uh, Christian neighbor, like when we go, they, you know, cut the meat halal style because we know we're visiting or mm-hmm. it's kind of just, like, you know, those little things. That's why I really love how the culture was there. It's like really yeah. never... We, I truly understand what Christianity is since the young age and what are the differences. And it's great to have those differences and to understand them. Mm. Do you feel like Americans could learn something from the Lebanese in your town on that front? It's a, honestly like I'm living in a big city. I don't see religion as much living in mm-hmm. New York. Like religion is not really, it's like uh, asking someone a lot about their job and how much they make. Religion is the same question. You don't ask that stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I lived in Charleston, South Carolina. That's a fun fact. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that weird religion was very intense. I don't never mentioned where I'm from or what's my religion. Fear of judgment. But in New York, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. I'm today, I'm not a religious person. I believe in God and all that stuff, but I'm not excessively going out of my way to tell people who I am and what mm-hmm. I believe in. Uh, so I truly believe is just depend on where you're from and the sensitivity of people. Smaller town yeah. in America, you can, it's hard to change and it's hard to, you know, break through. It's like they find me exotic when I go to like Charleston and to restaurants, but mm-hmm. it's kind of a sense of a fear. So I always drop the subject. I never really talked about mm-hmm. it because I sense something that not be mm-hmm. wanted, if that makes sense. Mm. But in Lebanon, it w- you were able to talk about it and you were able to talk about it freely. And yes, there was a, a richness to that. Yeah, like I always ask questions and like when we were kids and oh, and also they have respect when uh, like when I was in Christian school, they asked my parents if they like us to attend. They have a religious class, like one hour of if uh, of talking about Jesus and all that stuff. And my dad was like, if we're paying you so much money, yes, I want her to be in there and learning all that stuff. Like, yeah, actually, it helped me when I moved to the US to be extremely open minded to all kind of things that come my way. Like it built my life, this concept of being open to a different religion, even in a small 
small village. Yeah. People underestimate the power of a small village. It's honestly one of the biggest lessons of my life. I still learn from my dad and granddad, those two people who never left the village, who only speaks one language. My dad didn't even finish high school. But they are one of the most educated, smart people I know in my mm. life. And I enjoy their conversation. So mm. it's really a matter of like how you grow up and mm-hmm. what your family feeds you and mm-hmm. regarding to other people. Mm-hmm. And what would you say? What would you say is the root of their education? Did they graduate and or you know barely graduated or didn't graduate, but they read a lot, or is it that they were open minded in conversation, or is that they knew so many things about practical matters that maybe more educated people don't know? How would you define their well, education? It's kind of they love to talk. Man over there, mm. gets, uh, over there, it's all about like it's all about neighbors, about hanging out and spending mm. hours together. It's all about talking. My dad never. I, I he did some books, but he's not mm. really like that. Let's sit down all day long. My dad is a farmer, very simple mm. man. But mm-hmm. it just I think knowing people like when he go to the souk and he sells his vegetables and fruit and he goes to drink tea over another neighbor's house and he gets to meet all those different kind of people. And he was my dad was open minded from the beginning, even with me as a girl living on my own in the United States. He took it in such a great spirit. And I was fascinated by that him being that way. It's, mm-hmm. it's really hard to explain where he got this open mindedness. It's open mindedness, but in certain places, not every aspect of their life is open minded. If mm. that makes sense to it, oh, okay. Like conservative open-mindedness, like you know, respecting our neighbors. Also, we don't really like over ask about others, like personal lives. I, everyone says like, oh, this city life. People are you know always ask questions. Like everybody's having their own life. You know, it's a complete freedom. But in a village, is the same way. No one really overexpose about your personal life, if that makes sense. That is really interesting. And it is one of my questions is that, you know, sometimes people's complaint about a small town and I've never lived in a small town. I've always lived in the DC area, but I have lived in a small community in a big town and it can be quite limiting because you get put in a box at one point or you get put into, you know, there's a dynamic between the small number of people and you can't maybe change. Like some people change a lot as they mature, but people aren't necessarily open to you changing or they're not willing or ready to see you changing. Or maybe there is, you know, if your family does one thing, you have to continue to do that one thing. So yeah, but you didn't feel at all repressed by the idea of a small town. It's like when I was back home, the repression was not coming from living in a small town. It's becoming, it's going to be very kind of sensitive talk what I'm about to say next, but being a woman, being Mm -hmm. a woman, like, yes, I am respected by my family, but there's a limitation to women in that culture. Like Mm -hmm. everything you do, it should be guided through a man, you know, the way what you need to study because you're a woman, you only can be a teacher or be a certain things. You know, I, I didn't realize those stuff until I left and how people look at me when I came back. I'm glad that I I enjoyed what I had in my childhood. But as a woman, it's definitely there's a lot of oppression there. As long as you live by their own guideline, you're okay. But mm-hmm. once things a little change out of their norm, they definitely cannot be handled. Like they respect different religion and different people. But when it comes to their own people and their own women, it's completely different story. Yeah. Yeah. And did you feel that like when you were a child, did you look around and say, hey, this is so unfair? Or was it not until you went to the US? And then like you said, you came back? 
millions started to show in my adult life. Like when I started turning 14, like I'm not allowed to play. I am a tomboy. Like mm. I played in a dirt. I was playing toys till I was like 15. Like, mm-hmm. So my, my mom didn't allow me to wear shorts anymore or play with the boys or when like she, I'm not allowed to run anymore because I start to form look like a girl. And, you know, I'm mm-hmm. not allowed to leave the house after 7 p.m. Those rules start to be wow. in effect at certain age. The mainly, but it doesn't matter. Like I still today when I go home, I'm very respectful. Yeah. So at the end of the day, they're villagers. So when I go home, I wear very modest clothes. I know how to speak to my grandfather with respect and whatever they want, because this is their world and I should respect that. But mm-hmm. in my own world in the US, like I know what I have here. And I think what, what I really was looking forward is the freedom to be whoever I want to be like I really maybe like of course everybody talks about how hard the American dream as my dream was is my freedom everything else was an extra honestly like mm-hmm. um, the freedom to be the woman you want to be doesn't mean like running wild or just like just being your own person because you can never be as a woman in that country a woman of your own mm-hmm. in that countryside that I'm not going to speak for every single person in Lebanon or every educated family but where I'm from exactly like that small town was definitely depressing for women Yeah. It sounds like when was the first time that you said to yourself, because a lot of people come to the U.S. as a group, but it sounds like you really struck out and came on your own. And I'm wondering, when was the first time that you said, that's where I want to be? Did you see a picture? Did you hear about it? What how did that happen for you? It's a very long story, but I want to try. This is some very private stories, but I will definitely share part of it. But okay. Hello, listeners. Just interrupting to let you know what happened at this point in the conversation. Fatima and I discussed some of the things that happened in her late teens to very early 20s that she's not comfortable sharing publicly right now. So for the purposes of this interview, what is important to know is that Fatima spent five years from the ages 16 to 20 in the U.S. Her personal experiences during those five years changed her significantly. And now we pick back up discussing those changes. Honestly, I never was bothered by being like the woman or I was always respected. My parents were very kind. My dad never hit me. All the stuff I lived by that rules for so long. But a lot of events took place in my teen years that I realized I'm like, yes, as long as everything goes by the rules, everything is okay. But when you something really kind of bad happened, not bad in a sense, but something that out of their own norm. Yeah, they can't handle it. And I realized I'm like, wow, this is truly difficult. And like, I really didn't understand what's an ambition and what dreams are, by the way, like mm-hmm. until I moved to the US, I don't even know, like, I when I took my GED in the United States, I remember kind of opened my eyes on what is it to be independent or to be having your own dreams. Like, I really didn't even know what that means. We always live by, yeah. we live by the idea that man always take care of a woman. So whatever you do is an extra. Yeah. So I never thought I could be my own breadwinner. I cannot be my own dreamer and all those things. And yeah. I remember taking my GD and I saw the word ambition. I, I was speaking English only for a year at that time. I'm like, wow. what ambition mean? I was like fascinated by that word. And I'm like, what is my ambition? And that was that word kept following me until when I went back home. And I just thought like, you know, after being exposed to a Western culture, it was hard for me to fit in anymore. And yeah. especially after I left, at, I was 16 when I left the first time around. So yeah. I have no friends there except my own family it was yeah. so hard like even my relationship with my sibling at that time and I was very close to my family in my childhood it was super hard to yeah. I like lo- I love being around them I have six, like five siblings and full house and kids yeah. coming and kids going but I just really didn't see yeah. myself there didn't anymore 
Just a thought exercise, just as we talk about the different parts of Lebanon. If you had, for instance, grown up in Beirut, or if you had returned to Beirut, do you think it would have been a different experience? Not that much. I don't think okay. so. And also, I go back to say it depends on the family you came yeah. from, what are their uh, moral standards and their traditions. Yeah. So in your village, did you see a difference in terms of the expectations or the opportunities for women in Muslim homes and in Christian homes? In my generation, it's completely different than previous generations. Yeah. Women are allowed to be educated. You're not supposed to get married at young. Like for me, it was my kind of luck. I met this man and my parents thought it was a great fit. But my other sister, for example, she got married. She was 31 years old. She went to college. She got her PhD in yeah. mathematics. So it was not, they not suppress women not to be educated. Education is becoming more important for women because they support families. Like life is so expensive now. So men are starting to realize I can't do this on my own. I need this my partner to be strong enough to to do things. So now at least like, I mean, at least 60% of the women I know in my country work now and they support their husband and their yeah. family. Yeah, but it's it's interesting, though, even the way you say that it's not because there's been a change in the fundamental view of a woman and Exactly. And, and an ability that oh, she should have, like you said, this this story about ambition is very interesting to me that she should have ambitions or dreams. It's more just like, well, she'll serve the family best this way exactly. by, by working. Exactly. Yeah. So that was how I grew up in my like always you live to serve your family and the traditions, marriage. Marriage is a priority. Like I'm probably old maid in my term. I'm 28 years old. I'm probably old and old maid. You're like, very wow. young compared to me. <laughs> See, like this is this a mindset of things, but like it's really funny. Yeah. I find it very funny. And the thing is, I really love I it's so funny. I have this kind of mixed feeling about how I grew up, but like it made me who I am today. And I appreciate yeah. my life more than ever living in this yeah. country. Like yeah. with everything, difficulties in the U.S., like I still really like, I am very lucky. I'm grateful. Like I already have everything I need, my freedom. I go back to that yeah. word a lot. Yeah. So one more question about this <laughs> idea of dreaming and the opportunities and the expectations. Mm-hmm. Are, are men, so obviously they work outside the home, but even within that, are men really allowed to dream or have ambitions? Or are there different, but still very narrow expectations on them as well? Uh, no, absolutely not. Absolutely. Okay. Men are like, really, the doors are open to anything they okay. might want. You want to go to school, your father will support you all the way. Like also, the parents will help you build a house like that. They have constant support of all kinds. Men yeah. are treated completely different. Completely. Okay. 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 I probably raise a lot of um, uh, anger and issues. Actually, it might be very sensitive. My opinion for a lot of Arabs, if I came out yeah. that way. But this is honestly, I am writing my own story, and I'm writing my book right now. Yeah. And I, it's gonna be very like kind of a wave of opinions of that culture. But you have to say what the truth is. Men are still a yeah. priority. Women is a second class citizen, and that's the only truth. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, again, we're, coming, we're talking about food and we went into a completely different yeah. side. <laughs> it all it all relates. It all relates. So let's OK, let's go back to mm-hmm. to Lebanon then. And some of yeah, some of the happier memories oh, yeah, there. Yeah. Yes, actually, I want to talk like we're going to go back to the dish, Safiha, and what is like the most amazing memory and why I love this dish so much. And I want it to be made. 
honestly, one of the, like when I think of the word of, of this dish, it's always served in weddings. Like every time mm. there's a big wedding, people make lunches before the big day. So in the morning, like around 12 p.m. before the guests arrive, they make a huge lunch. And the main dish is served is usually safiha, which is made in bakeries. Nobody makes them at home. There's a beautiful bakeries that makes this dish. Mm. And I remember like being like 10 years old and sneaking in someone's kitchen and grabbing <laughs> like 10 pieces of this and running and actually getting caught many times. Also, I was the last person to leave the table. So when everybody eats and there's leftovers, I'm the last person. <laughs> you were the slow there. eater. <laughs> more like a more like overeater. Like I used to eat so much. <laughs> my parents noticed that at a young age that we have. So my dad in summertime, we have six kids. So my dad was the first to wake up four in the morning. I'm up with him eating breakfast, sleep, go back. Every time somebody's eating, I'm joining the feast. <laughs> I was a big eater since a very young age. <laughs> <laughs> but you look slim. Uh, thank God for running. I love yeah. I love to run. So that really helps. <laughs> Are you a runner? I didn't know yeah. that. Okay. So that was real hard when that was taken away from you when you were a teenager. Uh, yeah, definitely. It yeah. was definitely hard. I, I, I told you I was a tomboy and until yeah. today running is like my savior to be sweating yeah. and wearing boy shorts and going out there. Yeah. So let me ask two questions about the Safiha then. You said they didn't make it at home. And no. one, why is that? And two, is it even possible to replicate these in a home oven? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I make them here at home all the time. But over there, the accessibility of a bakery are way more, especially when you want to make like 300 or 400. Yeah. <laughs> it's you a lot. A huge bakery. And also, like, the only taste difference from home to a bakery is they make it in wood ovens. But in your home bake, like, it's going to be a little more. Uh, you know what I do? Actually, my kind of a little something I added to this recipe is yeah, I put tell like, me. a little bowl of water inside the oven so it keeps the moist. So when you take it out and you eat it, it's actually soft, not hard. Yes, yes. You know, the most recent time I made the pies, I wanted them, it specifically says in the recipe, make them golden brown. So I kept putting them back in to make them like kind of crunchy. And my husband was like, oh, these are good, but they're supposed to be really soft. And I was like, oh, I guess well, I forgot next about that. Time, yeah, next time, I should have put that note in because I just discovered this recently. I saw it on like a French show where they put a bowl of water inside the oven. Like once you heat it up, it yeah. keeps them moist in there. So when you take something like the safiha out, it's really like chewy and but still crispy and it didn't lose any of its flavor. It's amazing. You should That's, try that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that. I think they do that for baguettes also because it gets yeah. that like crisp right on the outside, but soft and chewy just as soon as you get in. Okay. That's a I great tip. I'm a French baker. I watch a lot of YouTube videos, so I go, I can go <laughs> deep hours in my YouTube uh, food hunting's video. Oh, that's good. That's good. Okay. So, and you remember eating them at weddings and was it pretty common that you would go out to bakeries like is eating out kind of a special treat there or is that just a common yeah, oh thing yeah absolutely also eating meat for example it's a luxury we don't eat mm. meat as often we are very plant-based because meat is expensive and not mm. everybody able to afford it on daily basis so my father used to take us to the old bazaar in Baalbek city near the roman ruins this is one of my favorite memories we do that almost once a month mm. and he take us like all the six kids piles up in a car and like take us to that souk to the bazaar and walking I remember like the, the smell at 12 o'clock at noon he mm. always take us at that time it's so weird we never go late at night or in the morning it's always 12 <laughs> and we walked down the bazaar and you smell it like there's 
only a few the bakeries like there's four or five bakeries but in, on the same street so you smell it mm. from the beginning of the road all the way to those tiny little bakeries that mm. bakery that but that used to take us was like all orange very crowded the color was always orange i don't know mm. why it's on the inside and they used to serve them with like raw vegetable green onions and mm. you know radishes and tomatoes and it was so good and they bring them up and you just eat them while they're boiling hot it's amazing and you take some with him home every time my mom does does a lot like to go out of the house a lot mm. so she usually takes some for her with us Mm, that sounds amazing. And would you yeah. put that other stuff on top or you'd kind of take a bite and then take a bite of a radish kind take of a bite and a lot of lemon juice. Also, have you heard uh, of a kefir, like the yogurt kefir? Yeah. So we mm-hmm. all do that a lot too with that dish. They make it a lot. It's called the Iran, which is like um, yogurt with garlic. And it's very similar texture for the kefir, but have more garlicky flavor. Oh. So it's, it's like a tzatziki. Yes, I love, 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 love garlic yogurt like just love it oh my goodness so those two combinations me too i love those and it's like actually it's quenched the thirst like when i drink that yogurt it's like the best drink ever when you're hot on a hot day like forget coke like this is the drink whoa wait i thought you meant like a sauce on it but you're saying you would drink the actually um, a drink so they uh, the yogurt over there is little tart it's very close to a buttermilk texture uh-huh. and little tart so they add salt they they smash a garlic and they shake it all together so it's like a yogurt shake savory yogurt shake with garlic salt and then you eat it with savory dishes like baked goods like safiha or lahm bajin or anything that it's like um it have dough and heavy meat in it it usually okay. breaks down so imagine the texture of yogurt with the texture yeah. of, you know, lamb. And it's amazing. There's oh. no for it. <laughs> yeah. The flavors sound amazing, but drinking a yogurt that has garlic in it, that I'm, that I have to try <laughs> that I'm it's struggling very, with very a little bit. <laughs> and you said though, it just quenches your thirst. It's one of the best drinks. It's also fit treatment. My mom used to use that when we have like fever when we're little. Really? She used that all the time. Mm. I cannot make it in the US because the yogurt here is very like, it's all more on the sweet side, even a plain yogurt. It's very hard for me. Like I, it's completely different. I don't know what's the difference, but it's still the tartness of the yogurt back home is completely different than here. So the That's closest thing is it is uh, probably like a kefir, like lifeway kefir uh-huh. can be a good Good one. That's very close. Not the same, but extremely close to it. Okay. I think your husband might know this drink too. Yeah, he might. I'd have to ask him. But he grew up here, so I don't know. I'd, his his dad might. I'd have to ask his dad. Yeah, you should. He probably will know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's very popular. They serve them also in weddings. Uh, so this food is mainly for big occasions and like holidays and celebration. And it's really, really, I, I every time I think about it, it's associated with a great memory. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that story. And thank you for like walking us right into the town up to the orange building with you. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I, I, I go there every time. Like I visit home is the first thing I do is go there to eat. And I eat a lot. Like I'm, I can go through 12 or 13 of those pieces just sitting there hanging. I'm smoking hookah, of course. It's oh, do you do you that. smoke the hookah? Do you do you yeah. smoke? back home only i don't smoke here because like i live in a tiny studio in a building and my father alarm probably will go nuts but i it's like i really love when i'm in a group with my family and my friends i love smoking but i try to avoid it because i run a lot too now that's okay so i have a couple of questions here one what are you smoking in hookah what's in it 
So it's like a it's like a tobacco, but um, it's called I don't know how to even say the word. I never really. It's like a thick tobacco that they they with flavor. They had like the apple flavor. They have. Mm-hmm gum flavor or mint and grape and they just uh, sprinkle it in this little head and they uh-huh. put alcohol on the top and it's just like a straw you suck it in and then smoke will come out just like a cigarette but it's way heavy if you're not used to it it might get you dizzy too oh oh i'm sure i wouldn't handle it but you know of course i've smelled it and everything and i just never really knew what was in it exactly so it tobacco. is a, it's a leaf it's a tobacco type yeah. leaf and it's just it's just different and i guess you don't know where the flavoring comes from they have a flavoring inside the tobacco. So it's very, it's a, when they, there's a jar that it's served with. So when they open it, it's like a very, so it's a flavored tobacco that they have in there. So usually the flavors are the most popular is apple, there's mint and there's grape that they put them in there. They're very popular since people don't drink. So they want some sort of like enjoyment during hanging out. So mm-hmm. most of the restaurants serve hookah. Do we even have hookah deliveries there? It's super like popular. Like every time you have visitors, you gotta turn on the hookah. Really? This hookah yeah. deliveries. That's crazy to me. <laughs> and and women, women smoke it also. Yes. But it's a it, it, new generation is very popular before even like it's been popular for like the last 40 years. Everybody smokes it like really my mom, my aunts, everyone. And so when you say the new generation, you mean theirs didn't, but like your grandparents generation maybe didn't. Uh, they did it, but not as heavily as now. Like when yeah. also an older generation, men and women, they were not allowed to sit together. So they right. used to have like separate sitting for women where they smoke hookah and only serve hookah when important guests come. Now it's becoming like a daily lifestyle. Like whenever I talk to my mom, she have a hookah on. I'm like, yeah. since when you've been doing that? Yeah. <laughs> I judge her a lot too these days. <laughs> when you get older, you get so close to your mom. <laughs> That's so funny. Yes. Oh, what a great visual. Again, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So speaking of this, it's called the Sook, right? The bazaar? Yes. The yeah. Souk. So is that where your dad sold his produce? Well, yeah, it's kind of, this is like the farther away, closer to the Roman area. So my mm-hmm. dad went to a smaller vegetable uh, bazaar that only for selling resale, like a uh, retail and selling big quantities of vegetable. My dad, in summer, he planted cucumbers and tomato, onions, potatoes. So we have at least 12 or 14 boxes of each item every morning, 7 a.m. And he goes to the big souk. Also, I have a lot of memory in that also different bazaar of vegetable bazaar where they sell a whole sell big huge garages people bringing their vegetables in and there was a big shop next to it that makes pita bread and mm-hmm. every Saturday my dad takes me there with him I beg him because he just doesn't like taking kids and he have to do business but I used to go there and buy the bread he gives me the money he's like okay I'm gonna do you know sell the vegetables you go get the bread for the day and it's one of the best thing I also remember too mm-hmm. Whatever you go to a big bazaar in Lebanon or in uh, whatever it is, like even clothing or like crazy, like open spaces, like farmer's market, you always smell bakery, smell bread, mm-hmm. smell za'atar, smell everything. They always have some sort of bread that's famous in that area, in that spot. Mm. Yeah, it sounds just amazing. It is. It is so many great memories. My mm-hmm. uh, father was, a, as I've been mentioning, he's a farmer. So it's like one of the greatest memories of my childhood is 5 a.m. putting my summer boots on and running to the field. We also had grape leaves. My dad had a lot of grape vines. And, and we used to really, my job in summertime was pick up grape leaves. And it's really one of the coolest thing ever is mm-hmm. actually selling grape leaves. Mm-hmm. Pickling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And stuffing them. 
Yeah. And so like from around uh, probably March, my dad started to get busy, like planting the land around July. All of the kids are on in the land, picking up the vegetables. Like my dad had six kids. My uncle had six kids. So all of us are just down in the land. They don't even need labor. All of us just there, just <laughs> helping them with everything, like how to, you know, do the work. It's super fun. We made mm. a lot of great memories on that land too. Mm. It was probably hot and difficult sometimes too, though. Yeah, mainly we finished, like we started our day when we have pick up vegetable. It's 4 a.m. We're outside even still dark. By wow. the time it's 7, you need to be done because you got to beat the market if you want to sell things for more expensive. Wow. And the longer the vegetables sit, the older they're going to get. So the faster, the better. And like you're going to take them to the to Wow. The wow. Yeah. So when we say fresh vegetables, you really mean a few hours old. Exactly. And wow. with dirt on it. When I go to the grocery store, even in summertime, we never buy anything. Even no. let's say we don't plant most of the stuff. Let's say we don't have corn or green beans. On the way home, all the neighboring lands, oh, hello, good morning, or whatever. They say hello, and they give you the vegetable of the day. Like, you know, they exchange the stuff. So we always had, my mom's table is always full of different kind of vegetable all summer long until the last leaf fall. Like wow. this is how awesome it is. And wow. she everything. And then in the winter, was it things that were pickled and preserved? Oh, yes. My mom, she's still so big on pickling. My sisters are the same way. We pickle like all kind of vegetables I'm mm-hmm. from cucumber to uh, onions to uh, cauliflower. And then we, we, we have a lot of Arabic dishes that are pickled for winter. Mm-hmm. She dry a lot of beans. She dry a lot of fig. We make a lot of jam. We have a lot of sherry jam. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, they all last us all winter long. There's so many cool dishes that it's hard to even, I need a two or three hours to explain the, the strategy <laughs> of making them. That's how cool it is. <laughs> <laughs> so in the summer, you would get up at 4 a.m., you'd go out to the field, you'd work out there for, you know, three hours. And then when you came inside, was there a big breakfast and who was cooking that? Absolutely. That's my mom. My mom is honestly, she is the cook. She, that's all she does. She's always in the kitchen. Mm. She's always cooking. If I remember my mom in my childhood, in wintertime, she's in the kitchen. And in summer, everybody get lost when my mom is not home. She's the most loving person like mm. I will ever know in my life. Everybody says, that about their mother but she's definitely like one she's a very very special human mm-hmm. the way she put love in her cooking is amazing mm-hmm. and it's funny i didn't learn her from cooking from her until i left because when we were younger she always like oh you're little you learn later she always make me peel garlic and squeeze lemons that was my job growing up <laughs> but i loved watching her hand when she shapes certain food or you know when you come home from school and the smell like filled your nostril of her cooking in our tiny mm-hmm. house and mm-hmm. Her the kitchen is just is only special with her, and also she's just I'm like her. She does not look at cooking any dessert. She does not like making any sweets. She sucks at it. I do too. <laughs> not even um, baklava. Yes, no, we don't. We, we, there's so many great bakeries that makes them. Which, yeah, because it's really expensive. Yeah. So your mom cooked, you know, all day, every day for eight people, and it sounds like you learned by watching, not by doing, because she didn't yes. want to burden you with that. Exactly. And she's such a fast cook that she literally whoops up a meal in one hour and she knows her way. She has no sense of measurement, but I see how she does. She measures things with her finger and with like, you know, visualizing and it's the coolest thing ever. And yes, I watched her a lot, like even pickling. I can just from the memory of her cooking, I can create things happen. Even now, when I ask her for recipes, she have no recipes whatsoever. I'm like, mom, this is not a true measurement for thing, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, because you can do that part easily and you know you know what it's supposed to taste like. So for you to translate it to, you know, proportions that we can use, that's probably pretty easy for you. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I don't, by the way, I don't do a lot of testings because I feel like it's a waste of food. Mm-hmm. So especially I'm on my own. Like I, everything you see on my blog is I eat everything. Everyone yeah. asks me the food. I literally don't waste any food. Yeah. Um, I came from a very like a, not a lower class, middle class yeah. family. So food is a big part. I don't believe in waste. So when yeah. I cook everything I cook, even if it's good or turn out okay, I share it and I say like how it turned out and if it needs any adjustments, and I will make it again in two or three weeks, but I still don't throw anything out. Even when I style my food, I don't style them for the sense like putting napkin or, you know, I just try to make sure that I'm eating the food afterward when yeah. I'm done. Yeah, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Did you have a favorite dish or favorite set of dishes that your mom made? So she didn't make the safiha. What did she make that you just loved? Uh, she makes a really good tabbouleh salad. Mm. She makes a great hummus. She makes a lot of uh, rice dishes with big round beef and spices. A lot mm. of winter stew with, with beans and lamb. And oh my God, there's literally not even one name. I can name you many, many dishes of her. She yeah. cooks a lot. There's like, she can go a month of every day, different dish. A lot mm. of soups. She make a lot of lentils during winter. A lot of vegetarian, like um, dry, we used to have one of also another favorite dish is dried green beans so she dried the green huh. beans in summer and she cooked them and went rehydrate them in winter and make them into this delicious vegetarian stew with garlic and you know also she make her own tomato sauce so imagine this dish of garlic tomato spices and then dried green beans that's rehydrated by all of this with some rice it's like truly authentic uh, truly mm-hmm. rustic like that flavor of that dish there's nothing beats it till today mm. Mm. When you go to a Lebanese restaurant in the U.S. or when you see Lebanese food, you know, in magazines or in blogs, do you feel like it, you, you use the word authentic? <laughs> do you feel it is authentic? I know that also, like you just said, waste, not wasting food is very important to you. Do you feel that it respects the recipes that you see, respect the frugality, the value of frugality um, that the Lebanese embrace? Uh, no, not really. Actually, this is mm-hmm. uh, most of the blogging is uh, marketed to an audience, entertaining audience, mm-hmm. not truly to embrace certain tradition. Uh, this is actually something I. It's funny. I'm gonna switch the subject a little bit, but it's mm-hmm. gonna still be related. Yeah. Uh, we cook for the audience that they think they got something they're going to like, not because something we truly believe in. That was me in the beginning of my blogging days. I was trying to see, like, what can I do to make it relatable? But honestly, that kind of stole the identity of some of the food. Mm. Until today, like, even a lot of magazines, I truly look at this dish. I'm like, no, you can't do that. Like, this is not how it works. And, mm-hmm. you know. I get very, very offended when I that a lot of I think it's a subject for everyone when I see a lot of huge websites and huge companies using a um, you know American or European uh, blogger making Middle Eastern dishes. I find that extremely sad to making mm-hmm. dishes that also most of it it's not the right way to make it. By the way, a lot mm-hmm. of the hummus that's out there it's not the right way. A lot of the tabbouleh salad like quinoa that's not how it is. This food go back like to the 13th centuries. Like that's not how it's supposed to be made. Mm-hmm. So that definitely where I, uh, it's not, so the people in our generation of blogging, it's more about not the authentic way, more it's how is it relatable to the people who are watching or our yeah. 
it's over like uh, the mindset of American. This is truly like that's why I'm slowly uh, trying to find my identity to be to offer the, my audience truly my true self or what I believe in cooking. It's a truly a political subject, but but it doesn't have to be belong to any uh, tradition, but we go back to the same thing. It's like really the the consumer mindset in America is insane. The way that people think about everything, like food, you want it at the moment, at that second. It's just, uh, that's what makes people like overposting or oversharing things that doesn't even make sense in certain food and certain recipes. And I found it to be just like, oversharing for things that's supposed not to be overshared, if that makes sense. Yeah. So again, the idea of you, well, give me an example of uh, over like so in America. Let's say we let's say I want to make a uh, chocolate mousse, for example. Yeah, there are millions of recipes. You can have everything at hand to make that recipe in every single way. You can change any ingredients. For example, when I go back home, there's a, if I want to make chocolate mousse, I might not be able to find eggs after four p.m. Yeah, everything is so available for us here that we cannot wait to to you know maybe love things a little more. Like for example, when when I have I host a lot of dinner by the way at home. I have a lot of friends over almost every other week. I have mm-hmm. dinners at the house, and people see like the love that it's put in the food. It's like Fatima. I wish I you can have one table dinner every single week, and I'll pay to sit at your table. And that's how amazing. Wow. It's like value in the food. We lost a lot of value of the food. Food is becoming part of an entertainment when it's yeah. not. Yeah. This is so interesting. So then this is a really natural segue into tell me about starting your blog. And then obviously your blog has gone through a transformation. And it sounds like maybe the transformation is not even complete for you yet. <laughs> It's a slowly becoming, uh, I'm trying to find my identity. When I first started blogging, I really didn't know much about it. So I truly was trying. I loved a lot of beautiful bloggers and I started imitating. Like, I love Cassette. She is amazing. She's one of my ideal. May, uh, May's Kitchen, and she's amazing uh, from Almond and Fig. And I started to take concepts from everybody around me because I really didn't know much. I used to cook. I cooked from a very young age, since I was 16. And when I moved to New York, I was very lonely in the beginning. Like, the first year moving to New York City was the hardest thing I've ever experienced in my life. And um, food was my saver. Like I spent a lot of time alone and food made me who I am today. It changed my whole life. In what way? So for example, I used to work 18 hours or 15 hours a day. And I just, all I did on my time off is sleep. Food made me leave the house. Food made me grab my toe, go to the farmer's market, explore things. Uh, it made me want to try different dishes and go to all those different restaurants, even on my own, like without anybody. I got a camera. I started to have hobbies. Like that's with food. And now everybody who knows me and my friends know me as Fatima who cooks and host dinners and every time they contact me it's a matter of me hosting dinner at my house and Mm -hmm. i made the best memories of my life over a dinner table Mm -hmm. and a glass of wine Mm -hmm. i will not take this back to anything it changed Mm -hmm. my whole life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then as you're trying to look for your identity as a blogger what what do you mean what what are you struggling through right now um, for right now, I really know exactly what I'm looking for, especially mm-hmm. after the pandemic. Kind of living, I, I work a full-time job in the city and also I blog on the side, but I'm trying to live a slow life in a busy city. Mm-hmm. I cannot live in a small town. I have a great opportunities in a big city, but I want to combine my both 
both lives like how can i have a simple life in a mm. sophisticated over uh, indulging city and this is where i am like how to cook meals and have friends and uh just to truly have little things like I truly live a very slow life. I don't mm. get overwhelmed with New York anymore. And it's made life here much easier. Mm. So I want to combine a village life and a city life. Mm. And that you, that's an amazing goal. And as you manage to do that, <laughs> I think that as an approach, everybody wants to figure that out. I think the more you share, I mean, if you want to talk about a niche or something that's attractive to people, everybody wants to figure that out. I mean, even just what you said, how to live a slow life in a big city. I mean, I'm like, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me how, you know, and I think everybody has that reaction. So I think for you to take that approach, I think that's brilliant and a real service to people really what people want to hear and is food a big part of your answer to that conundrum absolutely absolutely mm. cooking your own meal at home it's a it's a definition of slow like you mm-hmm. know just you know coming after a long eight hours of work i don't just sit down and watch tv i turn on the heat like i i post food but even when i don't post i cook for myself the most important part about living a slow life make your home you're set, like your center of everything. For me, my house looks like a farm, literally looks like a farm. I have a library, my bed looks like a farmhouse. And I live in the middle of the city, but I still manage in my space. You can make your life exactly what you want it, but it takes little step. It's not like I paid so much money to have that life. It's mm-hmm. slowly I build it up. I like, I don't like, I like mismatched plates. I like, I'm not into clothing or extra stuff. I invest <laughs> a lot in my food. Like mm-hmm. one of the most satisfying things for me to have a simple life is mm-hmm. after finishing eight hours of work, you know, shop some onion and garlic and smell it with olive oil while it's cooking, make even a plate of pasta. It's just like, mm-hmm. wow, makes you feel life is good, like running, running mm-hmm. after things. And then, no, life is really good over the plate of pasta and glass of wine, even by yourself. Like, mm-hmm. it's a matter of... Yeah. You know, yeah, it's so interesting because I think that it's always like you're totally reframing the problem and the solution because it's really interesting because in... Our entertainment food culture that you so brilliantly identified, the problem is cast as how long it takes to cook. And the solution is find quicker ways to cook your meals. And you are saying the problem is how busy our lives are. And the solution is slow everything down until you actually have time to do the cooking that you need to do to be healthy. Like if you don't even have time to do that, take something out of your life. It, absolutely like it yeah. you know for me life is like a triangle i really it's about the quality you're living in it doesn't matter how much you have or how much you do it's like what you can you make with it everybody have to work 40 hours like i'm not saying like i don't wake up sometimes on the weekends i sleep till 12 like it's not like mm-hmm. i don't force anything in my life everything is flowy like i came to a certain point i got burned out in the city and the busy life and i see like uh, this set of i want to succeed i want to do this i don't want to do that and i personally just took a step back and I truly like 
embrace every single day of what I do. Like I have good days and I have bad days, but I truly, yeah. truly try to find the balance to slow down a little bit. Like because without you know it, life is going on really fast. And you know, I I look forward to those five hours dinners with my friend in my house. Like as yeah. I said again, it's like building the life you want. When my be my friends walk into my house, they feel like they left the city for, even they yeah. are in the middle of the city. Yeah. And this is my goal. It's just like slowing down honestly yeah. slowing down yeah yeah that's so interesting i really do appreciate what you're saying i think yeah. there's so much for us to think about here so i thought it was so interesting in your bio you say you know you grew up in lebanon you were born in lebanon you grew up in lebanon but you're on your way to being a new yorker which is really <laughs> interesting because i think a lot of people would just say i'm on my way to being an american and now that i know that you lived in charleston south carolina for a little while it might be a little bit of the answer to this question but tell me about that why do you say you're on your way to being a New Yorker. You really plan to stay there. There's something you love about oh, yeah. it. It's definitely, it's definitely home. If, if I can, oh my God, it's, it's this is literally a big question, but I try to make it as simple as possible. It's the best place I've ever been with all the difficulties, with everything that I, it's the most challenging and humbling place you'll ever be. I discovered myself in a city like New York, the intensity, the best of friendship I made in a city like New York. I lived in Charleston, I lived in LA, and I lived in Dallas, Texas. I oh, tried wow. Different spectrums. And I just, the extreme, you know, craziness of the city, it makes you find who you are and your identity. New York really helped me find my identity. And I always dreamt of, you know, just having a tiny apartment and getting on the subway and living a city life. I always craved that, even as much as I, you know, like really go back, oh, simple life and everything. I truly find, found a way to balance my New York City life and my success and my job and my cooking and my simple life. I balance that. And that's what New York helped me do. And I will never thank the city enough for the friendship. Like since I moved to New York, I never spent Christmas or a holiday alone. That's how much the city amazing to wow. me. The best friendship I made was in New York. The best, I found how much I love cooking in New York. And yeah. I will never take that back because the city is truly magical. It pushes you to the limits. It breaks you down to find who you are. Yeah. Would you say you have found family there? Oh my God. Yes. I mean, it's, I have a few, like, I'm not like out there having 17, 18 friends, like those cool New Yorkers. I literally have like two or three friends, but mm -hmm. I have my people, like people mm -hmm. I rely on. If I felt there's a need for something or I need help with anything, I have two or three people that I call them family and yeah. I'm very lucky. It's very hard to make a friendship and in such a city where people are just moving and coming and going. I'm just curious about your journey in terms of this with the food, because you know, you talked a lot about how as a woman in Lebanon, you know, you didn't have a lot of options and there was one thing that was expected of you. And then in the U.S., you found every option available to you. It was only what what did you want to choose and how hard really were you ready to work? And my question is, like, let's be honest, the life of a housewife is very much a life of cooking. And I feel like it would have been easy to see cooking. I think this actually has happened in U.S. culture. I think cooking has been seen as almost a symbol of oppression. If you cook too much, you know, you're not a liberated or feminist enough woman sometimes almost. And I'm 
mentioned that. I have a long story for you, but I'll try to make it quick too. (laughs) Yeah, no. So yeah, I'm just curious. Did you ever struggle with your love for cooking and feel like that was something that was holding you down? Did you have to like re-embrace it at any point? Yeah, go ahead. Tell me your story. You actually spoke my my language right now. When I first started cooking, I hated the fact that I like to cook because Mm -hmm. it's like it defined me as a woman, like woman belong in the kitchen and my, you know, this mindset of like women should be cooking and suppressing it. I never looked at food at art. I always looked at it as like and responsibility and every time like as a woman job but then slowly like over the years like I just really defined food for myself as an art food is art for me like it's not sense of responsibility to anyone it's just like the way I put a dish together or something together it's defining in my own mind what I think food is wow it's wow. what a lot it, it took a big journey for me to not look at food as like a suppression as like something women should do because for families no it's not like that it's definitely changed yeah i looked at it completely different so was there a period of time you went through where you didn't cook and then do you kind of remember coming back to it or did you always cook but you just had to mi- change your mindset I started to notice like I never got compliments for my food when I was living, you know, with my family and my other families and all Mm -hmm. those things. But when I moved to the US and I started cooking for my American uh, friends and audience, people start to say things. I'm like, oh, really? My food tastes good? I didn't even know that. And then this is kind of woken up the idea. One of actually one of my best friends is the one who who has encouraged me. He's like, Fatima, your food is amazing. You should do something Mm -hmm. with it. And that opened my eyes. But I don't really embrace it until I didn't even I was working so much I never considered a hobby but until I became lonely in New York and I moved to the city and I have no one that I embraced it and I start looking at it as art blogging helped me a lot too to look at it not just food to feed family is something beautiful and artistic yeah yeah it's more than eating every day like I truly appreciate every meal I cook yeah one last thing is like also what inspired me to start this cooking is Julia and Julia, the movie. It's probably every cook says that, but the idea of like someone in their small kitchen dedicated a big chunk of their day. Like, you know, we live in America. Our life is centered about our job, but I yeah. made sure also till today, I don't treat my blog as like my business. I treat it as my passion. Like I will make money. I will do whatever. If it's fun to, if I got an opportunity to make money out of it, that's great. But if not, this is my passion and my love. I don't want this anybody to take that yeah. away from me to make Yeah. Fatima, I feel like you have such brilliant insights and I really am excited to share these. I really am. And like you said, just your your mindset shift to food as art and this idea of living slowly. I just, I think they're, I think they're amazing. So thank you you so much. I had the pleasure today. I can talk with you for another two, three hours. I actually want to ask you one more question and it's a big one. It's a big one. We have four minutes. I'm going to give you all four minutes. (laughs) I already texted my son and and said I might be a little late, but this is a big question because, uh, and I really, really am so curious on your perspective of this, because I feel, I feel like one of the strengths of America is it's, and I don't mean this in a cheesy way. I really mean it. We really, 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 really should just listen to each other. And so as someone who has lived in two different cultures and has experienced the highs and the lows of both, You know, I I think when I first reached out to you, it was because there was like a devastating event in Lebanon. And surely there have been devastating events in the U.S. between now and then. So as you are kind of like a citizen of these two countries, 
what are your hopes? Like, what is the thing that you would most want to see for Lebanon? And what are the things that you would most want to see for the U.S.? Well, I want to start with Lebanon because America is like my current home and there's a lot to say. But with Lebanon, I want to say is like I want peace for people and mm. just peace and safety for the people that I love who live there and people who deserve a chance. People there are struggling. There's so many talented people I know and I love and they have no chance to even have a job. Like currently people are not able to have employment for the last three years. I want this pandemic to pass and give them a chance to recover mm -hmm. from war and from devastation of government and, you know, with all this things going on and have a chance for new generations to get educated and grow and have a healthy and safe life. Mm -hmm. And just like truly, truly have some sort of peace that they didn't have in so long, not even since I was born. Like we never saw a really peaceful time of our life. There is always some new political event that's happening that have shaken the core of the country, mm. you know. That is something I hope for Lebanon and for my family. As for America, this is very, very, we are on the right path mm. like in the last few years, but I really hope for this country truly to give chance to people who come here, not mm. just saying it in an American cheesy dream way, but mm. truly give a chance to people to grow, like they give the opportunity to others. Now, specifically, like since I am in the food world, a chance to people to shine from different culture, not because of their popularity on social social media or certain way, but truly give the chance to people to shine and uh, without putting them down. That's pretty much it, honestly. What they can learn from each other, it's just like learning how to accept others from... Americans should have more acceptance of people of different culture and you should understanding of what appropriate question to ask and what's not. And like mm -hmm. how you treated me like, yes, I am an American citizen. And there's a lot of people who did not treat me like way like, yes, my struggles in this country does not define me. A lot of people struggled and that what people should understand yeah. too and see me to who I am as a person. I'm grateful for this country, for the freedom that it gave me. That's the only thing I came to the US for is my freedom as a woman. And this country provided that to me and everything else was an extra. Mm -hmm. But of course, there's a lot of things we can work on. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things we can give in chance to people Mm -hmm. like we used to do before in the 70s and the 50s and whoever came here to build a dream life. And it's not like this anymore. It's even harder now than ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Those are amazing words to end on. I, I really, oh, we're going to have to do a follow-up. Actually, I'm going to ask you right now if you would be willing to do an Instagram Live with me once your episode comes out because there's so many follow-up questions. Oh my God, I would love that. I don't really do that much lives, but with you, I will do that. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. We'll definitely do an Instagram Live then. I just, <laughs> I just like this story and your words, like this is why I wanted to start the podcast because I feel like every person because of their story has so much wisdom to bring. And I feel that you have brought so much wisdom to me. You've totally moved me. You've left me with so much to think about. And I'm just thrilled, thrilled that you came on. That's, I am, I, that's what I feel about your podcast. Every time I hear someone's story and I like uh, someone's word, way of work, it's just like, it's a, I, it transforms me in another world. Like I love mm -hmm. your podcast so much for that fact. And that's why I've been so honest and real about who I am. And I'm always yeah. like that, but I felt very comfortable and at home with having conversation with you. I feel like I've known you for so long. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll definitely do a live when this comes out. Yeah. Wait, have an amazing day. Thank you so much for having me. My absolute pleasure. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.
Thank you all so much for tuning in today. As we just mentioned, Fatima will be going live on Instagram with me next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to follow up about this conversation. We're particularly going to discuss some of these final questions about what the Lebanon and particularly the U.S. can change, how we can give more opportunities to brave people like Fatima here in the U.S. and um, just talk about these things she referenced the 50s and the 70s and what was working well then, what she would like to see now. So we'll talk about some other things too. You can follow me over on Instagram at the storied recipe dot podcast. Just search the storied recipe and you'll find it on Instagram to catch that live. Also, of course, as usual, you can find all of Fatima's contact information on the storiedrecipe.com as well as her recipe for these delicious safiha pies. Finally, thank you all so, so much who have left reviews over the last week. As one last reminder, between now and the end of April, which we're very, very close to, Podchaser is donating to Meals on Wheels America for every review left by you and every response left by me. So you can help the podcast grow, which will share the beautiful stories of my guests with more and more listeners, all while also providing meals for those who cannot cook in themselves. I do want to just thank Nicole right here publicly for this lovely review that she left last week. Nicole said, I love listening to Becky interviewing her guests. She is a skilled interviewer and photographer. What beautiful photos. Thank you, Nicole who asks interesting, thought-provoking questions, often evoking an emotional response, not just from her guests, but for her listeners too, or at least in me. Thanks, Nicole. My, the guests provoke that response in me too. Nicole continues, I look forward to listening to every episode, usually when I am in the kitchen making dinner for my family. Nicole, thank you for listening and for leaving that review. And to all of you listening, again, it's super easy. Just go to thestoriedrecipe.com. You can go to the show notes in the episodes. You can just go to this episode and easily find how to leave a review. It will help me a lot and donate towards Meals on Wheels. We have a great series coming up, a Mother's Day series. We're going to be exploring several different mother-daughter relationships. I haven't found a mother-son yet, but I'd still love to interview one. If you know somebody, reach out to me if they would fit for this series. And I'm booked up through July after that. So many exciting interviews coming up. I hope you will hit subscribe now to tune in. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.